We're going to be in the book of Exodus, and we're going to start in chapter 15. So we're starting this Advent Christmas series here called, um, I'm calling it Christmas in the Desert. And so we're going to have two introductions, because one, this is the first go-around, and so, and I have to fill the two hours, apparently. (laughs) I want to recognize and celebrate God's faithfulness to us in bringing us here and and have a, a sense of joy about us as we study God's Word and but also introduce this whole series about why, why do an Advent series from the book of Exodus and how is Christmas in the desert something to celebrate because it doesn't sound fun. And so, like I said, we get two introductions. So before we read it, I want to tell you why we're doing it and then we'll read the text and then we'll get started. But you know, Advent is the time of year where we as Christians together retell the story of the gospel, the old, old story of where we together just collectively feel what the Israelites felt as they looked for the coming Messiah, but also looking back and saying, okay, this is what God has done at Christmas. The whole idea is that Christmas become more real to our hearts. You know, like God really did come as a baby to, to die for our sins. But we're starting in Exodus because, like any good story, you can't start in the middle. And Christmas really is the middle. It's... it's the context. I mean, all these different words, you think, I don't know this. I mean, if you, I don't know if any of you have read Harry Potter, but you wouldn't start reading the last book. You hear the name Voldemort and the, the words like muggles and quidditch. They mean absolutely nothing if you start at the end. But if you go back to the beginning, you get a, a language, you get a context, you get, get the whole reason why people celebrate this one person. And that's what Christmas is about. That's what Exodus is for. It gives us a language. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is leading a better exodus. You can go to Luke 9, and that's what he's talking about with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, they start talking about his departure, and it's the actual literal word for Greek word for exodus. And so the message of Christmas is, is very similar to Exodus, where God says, I've heard your cries for help, I've seen your suffering. And so I'm sending my son to lead a new and better exodus of the redeemed through the blood of the lamb out of slavery to sin and suffering and death towards a world that will be tearless, deathless, and sinless. So exodus has a lot to tell us about our God and why he sent his son as a baby. And so second... We're also starting in Exodus 15, which is in the middle of another story, <laughs> because it's a celebration. Right? We want to celebrate this new beginning and want to celebrate what God has done. And I'm excited, and my prayer is, is that we would all know much more deeply how loved we are in Christ as we go forward, and that whenever my departure from you will be, in the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 20 years, death, I mean, only God knows <laughs> right, that, that we would have a deeper faith, a deeper trust where God leads us because of the gospel, because of who Christ is, because of, um, because of this work of God, that we would become a singing people. That's what Exodus 15 is about. And so that's, it's going to help us. One, it gives us a context because God's immediately, right after we sing, he's going to lead us out into the desert of normal life. This is where we live. We, go, we all go back to work on Monday. 
The wilderness is the place of hardship, trial, temptation. It's, there's good times. There is an oasis. We'll read it that at the end. But still, this is where God meets us. This is where God teaches us. This is where he reveals himself is in the desert. And so that's why we're going to do this Advent series, Christmas in the Desert. Because this is how God works. He sends you out. Think of Abraham. Abraham, go out and wander for your whole life. Nation of Israel, here, they're going to go out in the desert for 40 years right after this amazing work of God. David, some of his best psalms were written alone in the caves in the wilderness. They went out into Babylon where they actually learned to pray in the wilderness, in the desert. Jesus was baptized, declared to be the Son of God, and then immediately sent out into the wilderness. The Apostle Paul was converted And he was immediately sent out into the wilderness. This is the pattern. So this is where we're going. And so let's read it and see what God has to teach us this morning. We're going to read the whole chapter of Exodus 15. And this is right after God has brought the people across the Red Sea. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. And all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the Horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea. The Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. 
But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. And so let's, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We are joyful this morning because you've brought us together, and I just pray that you would give us eyes to see your faithfulness in the desert. That you would send your spirit to give us the ability to see your power working for us as Jesus, as our captain, as our king, as the divine warrior who wins the battle for us. So help us to see your steadfast love despite our wandering hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was reading this passage, I mean, I'm sure you got the sense of it about just trying to get a sense of the joy these people must have had coming from death into life. I mean, they they were literally under a death sentence as a whole army was ready to just slaughter them. And they come out on the other side with the dead bodies of their enemies behind them. It's an astounding thing. And yet, I'm American. I, I can't not look at these dead bodies and say, how in the world can people sing with that right behind them? It's pretty brutal, is it not? When you heard what they were going to do, the enemy said, I'm going to pursue, I'm going to overtake, I have a sword, my desire is going to have the fill of them. And God fought on their behalf. It says, I mean, it's a poetic description. He blew with his nostrils and the sea covered them and they just sank like a stone and they all drowned. They were covered in a flood. And they said, who is like you, oh God? We, we love you because you are on our side. And I know, we, we cringe when we hear that, because it's hard to celebrate God's goodness when you're afraid of him, when he makes you anxious. And this, this is the God that makes everyone anxious, this kind of power. But at the same time, I mean, as I was preparing, I, this is the only sermon I'm going to have like a month or two months to think about what I'm going to talk about, so it really probably could have been two hours <laughs> But at the same time, we've had this whole thing about the Syrian refugees. I have a Time magazine in my office describing their exodus. And so, 
I don't know if you've seen the videos of them coming to the shores of Greece, finally being free from the danger, the everyday death sentence they were living under of, of the rejoicing, the crying, the hugging, I mean, just kissing the ground and pulling out their cell phones to call their family. <laughs> and the way they got there, I don't know if you know, is they're, they're taking these little rubber rafts, not made to go on open sea. They have to travel five miles in open freezing water to get to the place of safety. And a lot of them don't make it. And so as uh, one man actually said as they landed, I'm just so relieved that I'm finally safe. And they sing. And then you add in Paris. You can see the fear, of the horror that they were fleeing as it was brought to our world. Evil, oppression. And so you start to get an idea a little bit of why these people are so happy and why, yeah, it is terrifying that God does judge evil. He does judge oppression in ways that we, that make us anxious. And yet it's something we deeply long for. Evil to be wiped out. Things like Paris to never happen again. To actually see justice poured out. And, and so this is what they're singing about. God has saved them. He, he said, the people of Israel are mine. And he divided. And Israel took, or Egypt took the judgment and Israel got the salvation. And so that's why they're singing. And Egypt was just as brutal as ISIS. And this is really helpful for me as I was processing Pharaoh, you go back to Exodus 1, he was threatened by just the sheer number of Israelites living in his country. And so he enacted a brutal program, a ruthless campaign of race-based slavery and genocide. Infants, male infants were, were killed for population control. Whereas one writer says, I mean, you can just imagine this with me, what it would have been like to be a slave in Egypt where he says, just imagine you're a field worker and your harvest is half taken by worms, the other half is eaten by a hippo, and then whatever scraps you have left is stolen by thieves, and then comes your slave masters to collect all your hard work and you have nothing. They come with palm rods in their hands. And so this is how an Egyptian describes the kinds of things that were done uh, back then where where the slave masters say, they give us corn and they have none. And so they beat him as he lies stretched out and on the ground. And then they throw him into the canal and he sinks under, head underwater as his wife is bound before his eyes and his children are led away in chains. It's just brutal. So when Israel sees the Egyptians no longer a threat as they've moved literally from death into life. They sing. They celebrate. And they say, God has done something here, and they can't not sing. This is the joy of a people who have actually seen God work. It's the joy of conversion. So you can, you can make this about you and me. It's the kind of joy when you realize that God has forever thrown your sins into the depths of the sea to never be raised again. It's Micah chapter 7. Completely forgiven because God sent Jesus to die in your place. That kind of joy, this is what they're celebrating. It's the kind of joy that comes when you see and recognize that you're not a nobody, but God has claimed you for his own and fought 
moving heaven and earth to fight for you. That kind of joy. You can't not sing because you've actually seen God fighting for you. And so, yeah, I mean, we do have to start. This, some of this song makes us uncomfortable, and, and the cross is going to help make sense of that. But essentially what this chapter is teaching us is that we are called to sing and to celebrate God's work wherever he leads us. Whether it's at the immediate point of conversion or out in the desert through hardship and through trial. Because right? you saw it here. I mean, they, they finished singing and then the women came out and started leading the same song all over again. Everyone learned it. They had a dance party. I mean, they weren't Presbyterian. Their hips, their hips stay still. But the, the, I think the reason they do that is, and you see it all the way through the Old Testament, is it's teaching us that this song celebrating God's grace is something to be repeated continually in the life of believers and in the life of the church. Right? And so, let's start out. I mean, this, is, this is the point for us. Right here in Boston Spa, that we're called to sing and to celebrate God's goodness and grace wherever he might lead us. And as this text shows us, immediately out into hardship and into trial, into testing, and into the place of provision as well, and love and, and, and guiding. And that there's both ends. You can't, it's not all negative. <laughs> all right, so sing the song that never ends, especially when you're in the wilderness. That God is my strength and my song, and this is my God, and I will praise him. So we're called to sing in the midst of triumph and tribulation. And so that's what I want to talk to us about, because I know it's a lot easier to say than to do. But this is the example and the command you're going to find all the way through Genesis, from Genesis to Revelation, to sing, despite your circumstances. You got it in the Psalms, rejoice, God, you are my song. All the way through, it's a hymn book. You've got it in the New Testament. Let the word of God dwell in you richly so you're singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart. Sing. It's about joy. And when you get to the very end, that's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song about Jesus. You see in Revelation 14 and 15 that the redeemed are singing a new song before the throne of the Lamb. Beginning to end, it's a whole song singing. Look at what God has done. Look at what God is doing. Can you actually see it? It's supposed to give you so, so much joy you can't not sing. I mean, J.I. Packer said a, a theology, an understanding of God that does not get you to sing is a flawed understanding of who God is. That there is a song being sung to God that began in creation and that will continually be sung by the redeemed forever. And we're just called to join in. We're invited to join in by God. Sing joyfully regardless of your circumstances. Like I said, that's a lot easier said than done. <laughs> but, but at the same time, this is what it's teaching us. If you actually have eyes to see it, it's a supernatural thing. If you're on the, the shores of the Red Sea and God's shown you his goodness, we should remind our face. <laughs> I think it was Jack Miller who was always going around saying, cheer up, you're worse than your thought. But God loves you anyway. Or I've heard other people say, you know, God loves you, you should remind your face. <laughs> and 
Yet there's a place for weeping. I don't want to diminish that in the Christian faith. But it is saying that if you've seen God work alongside the struggle, there will be moments of joy. And so let me ask you a question. As God leads you into the desert, what kind of ordinary things keep you from singing? And where's the struggle here? And what kind of things have happened that make you question, God, do you even notice me down here? Or make us say, God, I know I'm supposed to trust you here in the desert, but it's awfully difficult right now, and it's really hard for me to sing. And I think this is where Exodus is going to help us. Because it puts the two things together. The wilderness and joy. Right next to each other. Because this is where God's going to lead us. I mean, it's one thing to sing of God's goodness and grace right at conversion. I mean, this is where the most joy is. But it's quite another when you're starting to be confronted with the, the ordinary problems of ordinary living. Which the Bible calls the wilderness. And so let's, let's talk about the wilderness here. We're called to sing regardless of our circumstances, but we're called to sing in the wilderness because this is an ongoing song. Right, and right smack dab in the middle of around this, well, let's try this again, right, right in the, where this song is on both sides of it are two accounts of Israel being in the desert. they set free from slavery and God takes them out purposely into the desert. And immediately after this, we read, right, Moses, it's God's plan, led them right out into the wilderness, into the place of trial and testing. And that's, that's the Bible's word picture for everyday life. I mean, we may not actually be nomads living in tents in 120 degree heat, but it's a picture. This is what life is like in the world in which we live where we get thirsty, where we get hungry, where we work and play, where we hang out with friends, where we live life with our spouses and with our family. That, that's the wilderness. This is ordinary life for absolutely everyone, according to the Bible. And I, I want to prove it to you because this is, this is an abstract thing. You might not have thought of this before. But the whole story of the Bible is God made man in Genesis, put him in a garden, we rejected God, and so he sends us out, and so basically through sin, what was a garden has now become a desert. That's what the, the curse has done, and God through Christ then is taking the desert and turning it back into a garden, but it's actually going to be a garden city. But that's, that's the whole picture. The garden, what was good, where you could see God's goodness, where you could walk in the cool of the evening with God, seemed so foreign. Now it's filled with sand and death and destruction. Where you can find thorns and thistles in every nook and cranny in your life. And it's just a poetic way of saying we hurt, we have sorrow, we have struggles, we have conflicts with one another. We have loss. That's the wilderness. It's the place of need. It's the place where you finally realize for the first time you're not in control. Right? Crisis situations are, are really us becoming aware that we live life in the wilderness. One of my favorite movies, if you've ever seen Lawrence of Arabia, 
It's an older movie. It, beautiful, fantastic snapshots of the desert. For whatever reason, I watched that and wanted to ride a camel in the desert. And I know it's probably not comfortable. <laughs> but Lawrence, I don't know if you know the story, was a British officer who was weird. He loved the desert. He, it, it fulfilled his sense of adventure. And when his first adventure in the, in the desert, this place he thinks is going to be fantastic, he's out there with an Arab guide, and they're, finally, they're desperate for water. And they come across a well. And while they're at the well, they're pulling up water. Off in the distance, they can see a cloud. I mean, it's so flat. And that cloud becomes a person on horseback. And it's this person on horseback, another, uh, another Arab out there. Without a word, he just pulls up and shoots Lawrence's Arab guide. Kills him. And... Lawrence is just flabbergasted. Why did you do that? And this is what the guy on his, on his horse says. That man was nothing. The well is everything. He was Hasimi. This is a Harith well. He should have known better. It's brutal. That's, that's the wilderness. All kinds of stuff happens. And it hurts, there's conflict, there's loss, there's death. And it completely blows, or completely opens up our eyes to see what the world is like in which we actually live. Nobody loves the desert. There's nothing in the desert. Nobody loves nothing. <laughs> That's the quote from the movie. And so here's the point. I'm trying to paint this picture here of where these people are singing, where God is leading them, that you and I live in the desert, and that the hardest thing for us to do in the midst of those kinds of situations is to see God's goodness and to continue to sing. And to see that God's goodness really is fighting for us, even though we can't feel it. I mean, you're starting to see that the, the call on the Christian, on you and I, makes us weird. Because while we experience loss, we're still supposed to sing. And who does that? It's saying that Jesus gives us the ability to sing, even in the desert. And that makes us a people completely different than our neighbors. Because, yeah, there is hardship. We say that there's also goodness and joy because of what God is doing and actually having the ability to see it. So we don't really have time. This is a much this is a poetic text. So I'm trying to speak more artistically here instead of just three points. But just think about music and the way music plays a part in our neighbors' lives and in your lives, I'm sure. The way we use music to try and take us from sadness to joy. When you can't go into a public space anymore and, and just have silence, music is everywhere. It might be pop music. It might be elevator music. Even as you call on the phone, you put on hold, you have to listen to some terrible music. Right? But that, that's how my generation, that's how the younger generations, that's how they get through life. With, with iPod earbuds in their ear. And the music helps make sense of their loneliness, their frustrations, their goals, their aspirations, trying to find joy. I mean, that's what pop music is all about, of trying to have a party in the desert, even, 
and put our head in the sands and try and forget just how hard it is when I go back home. A lot of music is about loss, where life feels senseless, where people feel insignificant, where they don't know if God is for or against them. And so that's why I said this is what makes us so unusual, because we sing joyfully in the desert. So we have a God who helps, helps make sense of it. Because look at, look at the people of Israel here. I'll give you three things to remember we're going to talk about in the desert over and over again over the next several weeks. I mean, the wilderness is the place where people feel like life is just senseless. Where, well, like in Exodus 17, I mean, they said this repeatedly. God, what was the point of bringing us out of Exodus for us to die in the desert? To kill us with thirst. Is there a plan? If there's a plan, it's not a plan I chose. I don't like this plan. It seems like I'm just going around in circles here. Life seems senseless. We can't make sense of the why. That's the wilderness. But it's also the place where we feel insignificant. Israel went from singing on the shores of the Red Sea to, to questioning God's ability to even notice them three verses later. They feel like I must not be important to God if I'm suffering. Have you heard Adele's new song called Hello? Well, pop culture here. There's 450 million listens on YouTube. That's just YouTube. And it's this beautiful, haunting song about being on the outside of a relationship. And one person said it, it it's as both. It sounds like it could be sung on a wedding day because it's so beautiful, or it sounds like a punch in the gut because of a bad breakup. But either way, the lyrics are just saying, Hello, can anyone hear me out there? Keep crying out and crying out. It feels like you're a million miles away. And it, she's talking about relational insignificance, but I know that's exactly how people feel in the wilderness. So we cry out, God, are you there? Do you even notice me? Have you heard my cries? When I call, you never seem to be home, she sings. The wilderness is where life seems senseless, where we feel insignificant, but it's also the place where it's really hard to see God's goodness. We can't see. I mean, as a pastor, one of the best, my favorite verses to quote, and I know we do this when it comes to suffering, is to quote Romans 28, right? that all things work for the good of those that love God. He's going to work it all out for good. And it's absolutely true. But the reality is, for a lot of us, we never actually see what that good is. It's really hard to see what the good is. As we're going to study here in Exodus for the next several weeks, Israel never got the idea that God was leading them out into the desert to show them how much he loves them. It was for their good and for their sanctification. They never got it, because they couldn't see it. And so most of them, that, that generation, scriptures tell us, they all died in the desert. So I'm trying to paint two pictures here on purpose, because I think this is what the, the two stories do side by side. Of We're called to sing joyfully, to be a prophetic people, to tell, yes, yeah, God is good no matter what is going on in my life. And yet the wilderness still is the place where I wonder, you know, sometimes life feels senseless and I, I feel insignificant. Does my life even matter? And it's in the midst of that that we're called to sing God's praise. 
That's what the scriptures tell us, to see his grace and his goodness and to tell the world that because of Jesus, we know for certain that we are not forgotten, that life is not senseless, that even as we weep, we can still rejoice because we know this suffering has an end and that this wilderness will become a garden. There will be a morning where there'll be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more suffering, where you won't, where you won't have to live in the wilderness not seeing God. You'll see him face to face. So the question is, how do we do that? How is it possible for anyone to do that? And the picture here we get is because of who is leading the singing. Because of Jesus. I'll give you the snapshot from the old, and then I'll give you the snapshot from the new. Because here in Exodus 15, it's Moses who wrote this fantastic song. On the spot. I mean, he was a poet and a writer. Moses was God's chosen deliverer for his people. He's the one who sees God's goodness and tells all millions of people to sing together that God is good even while they're in the desert. And so Moses says, look, you are the God's redeemed, you are significant, God's taking you to his home, his abode, the city where all things sad come untrue. Life will not be senseless and random. He's going to guide you and lead you in a steadfast love. That's what it says in the song. And yet three days later, everyone forgot the music. But we read in Hebrews 2 this morning, and I hope you saw it, that that Jesus was in the midst of us leading the singing. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. This Jesus is going to sing God's praise. So this is what I want you to get this morning, is that Jesus, when he came at Christmas, is to teach us how to sing in the wilderness, that he actually sings a song that we will not forget helps us to rejoice even in the wilderness. So let's go through it. Remember Jesus' baptism. Jesus went down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John out in the wilderness, and the Spirit came down on him like a dove, and they heard this booming voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, whom I love. I'm I'm pleased with him. And God immediately sent him out into the desert. And I want you to see the pattern here. It's the same pattern. Israel was baptized in the Red Sea, claimed as God's son, and sent out into the deserts. And so Jesus is showing you that he's going to live Israel's story in the desert, and he's going to do it perfectly. And so Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted, and you can read it. If the first temptation, this is the question. If you are the son of God, if God really loves you, command this stone to become bread. Satan comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, you're hungry, you're in the wilderness, your life stinks right now. If God loved you, this wouldn't be so. So just use your power to, to get through this on your own. And for the first time in the history of the world, a human being saw God's goodness in the desert and said, man does not live by bread alone. I'm content with my God. I don't have to complain. This is otherworldly. You get to the second temptation. If you are the son of God, Satan says, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You can find significance without the suffering of the cross. And for the first time in the history of the world, a human being sees God's significance as good enough in the desert. Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And you come to the third temptation. 
You're getting the idea that Jesus is doing something here that absolutely nobody has ever been able to do, which is always see God's goodness no matter the circumstances. Because the third temptation, if you are the Son of God, if God loves you, throw yourself down all this, off this temple and he will protect you. Because right? if God really does love you, he won't let you go through bad things. And for the first time in the history of the world, a human being is content with whatever hardships God sends his way. and He doesn't feel the need to cast out a test to see if God loves him. Because he knows. You're starting to see that the one who leads the singing is completely different from Moses. And so by the time you get to the Lord's Supper at the end, right before Jesus' death, you find Jesus singing. Because that's what the psalm books are. I mean, at the Lord's Supper, the last thing, it's a Passover celebration. And one of the things he was doing was leading the singing of Psalms 113 to 118 with his brothers, with his friends. And these are the things he sang knowing he was going to die and that it was God's plan. He sings, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory, O Lord, for the sake of your steadfast love. He sings, blessed, let's see if I can find this here, great is this day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He's about to die on this day, and he knows it. This is the singing he calls us to. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He knows that God's going to bring him through the wilderness, a mockery of the justice system, go through immense physical pain and die alone. And he still sees God's goodness. Even on the cross, as he dies, he quotes a song. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, where are you? He's, he's still seeing God's goodness. He's still looking for it. All right. Moses claimed God as his God in victory, but God, he even claims God in defeat. And he does that for you and I as he takes the punishment we deserve. Because when you find him on the cross, he's actually taking... Well, he's being drowned like an Egyptian in the flood of God's wrath so that we would never have to deal with that, so we can cross from death into life, so that we could always have one thing to look at and know that God really does absolutely love me, and that's the cross. So my prayer for us this morning is that you would hear Jesus' song in the wilderness. He's not only leading the singing of God's praise, saying, this is someone you need to get through the wilderness. He's also singing over the fact that he has you. Right? This is Zephaniah chapter 3. The God is in your midst. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love and celebrate over you with loud singing. He makes a fool of himself singing, loud singing. Because he has you. Right? And so... This is what we need. This is what I, I hope our ministry here together will bring in Boston Spa is that we could be the voice of the redeemed, those who sing God's goodness together in the wilderness and say, look at Jesus. Because of him, I know my life isn't senseless. I know I'm significant. And I can actually see it. It's a miracle. Let's sing together. And see that he will lead you home.
And so in conclusion, I, I know some of us are going through hard things, and, and you all know my story, a lot of you do, that I don't say this lightly. I mean, the, the summer I lost my dad and, and my grandmother within three days, and then two months later my other grandmother passed away. And so this is the metaphor that's helped make sense of why this stuff happens. And to know deep down, even though we experience loss, it doesn't mean God isn't good. It means sin has made a complete disaster of this world in which we live. And because Jesus sung faithfully in the desert, I know I can sing forever with him in a world where we no longer have to lose people. And so we need together to work together, this is application, to cultivate the skill of seeing God's goodness in the desert. Right? Of, of holding up the cross as necessary, of, of crying with each other as we cry, as, but really just looking, deliberately looking for the good things in our lives. Right? Maybe it's spending time watching the sunrise. Of, or thinking about just the wonder of the fact that our bodies work, you know, that we have hands, we can grab, we can see, and the wonders of, of the universe in which we live, and you see the, how many billions of light years there are in this, in this galaxy, and God says, you're the one that I, I care about the most. Yours, yours the song I want to hear. I mean, these are the things that give us joy. Or maybe we need to think even more deeply about what heaven's going to be like having a new body as our body wastes away. Right, of of what, what it's going to be like to take that first deep breath where we're not just consumed with ourselves. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. And I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton about joy. And he says this, he says, Because children have this seemingly endless joy, they always want things repeated. They're always saying, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again and again and again until they're nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to celebrate in the boredom and the monotony and the mundane, but perhaps God is. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and do it again to the moon. I mean, it might not be automatic necessity that God makes all daisies alike, but it may be that God makes every daisy separately because he never gets tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is so much younger than we are. So let's, let's ask for God's help to give us the eyes to see his goodness. And so as we celebrate this new beginning, no. God's leading us out into the desert, but he promises to meet us there and to provide for us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for Jesus, who was able to sing faithfully even as you weren't with there with him on the cross. And we thank you that he was the perfect, the perfect one who passed every test, even as, even as he suffered. So I pray this morning for those who are suffering that they would turn to him in trust and comfort and see that he is someone you can cry out to in time of need. And most of all, I ask that you give us eyes to see with joy of being forgiven, 
the joy that we have in Christ, that you will one day make all things sad come untrue, and that as we go back to our ordinary lives, you go there with us as well. And you will never leave us or forsake us because Christ was forsaken on our behalf. So we pray for your help, Father, and your joy this week. In Christ's name, amen.